The Bride of Yitzchak by Rav Chanoch Waxman The search for Yitzchak's bride didn't take very long. Immediately upon arriving at the well in the city of Nahor, Avraham's servant prays to God and formulates his test. Before he is finished, Rivka appears. That very evening, he is whisked to the house of Betuel, where the negotiations are conducted and the deal is sealed without even a break for a meal. The very next morning, the servant takes Rivka in hand and returns home to Yitzchak, a sum total of maybe twelve hours in Aram Naharaim. In marked contrast to the actual pace of events, the pace of the text that reports the events is downright leisurely. The Torah devotes a remarkable 67 verses to the full story of the Bride of Yitzchak. The large majority dedicated to the plans and negotiations of the character termed the Servant of Avraham. The text is lengthy, and at times even repetitive. A quick structural sketch should help elaborate this point. The story can be broken down as follows. Section 1. Avraham's command to his servant to take a bride for Yitzchak from Avraham's land and birthplace. Section 2. Rivka and the servant at the well. Section 3. The offer of hospitality at the house of Betuel. Section 4. The negotiations at the house of Betuel and the repetition of the story until this point. Section 5. Parting and the journey home. And Section 6. The meeting and marriage of Yitzchak and Rivka. While the story of the Bride of Yitzchak and its core action of the servant's search in sections 2, 3, 4, and 5 are certainly important, we may well wonder why it deserves so much space. Couldn't we have made do with a little less detail? In other words, why does the Torah present us with a near blow-by-blow account of the servant's story, those few brief hours in Aram Naharaim? Let us begin by thinking about section 2, Rivka and the Servant at the Well. On both the thematic and linguistic planes, the story is about kindness. The test is primarily a test of kindness. The servant plans to stand near the well and ask for a drink of water. The first girl who not only offers the servant water, but also freely offers to provide drink for the camels, will be the one chosen by God. Likewise, on a linguistic level, the test itself is bracketed by the term kindness. The servant prays to God to show kindness to his master Abraham before starting the test, and concludes his prayer with another reference to divine kindness. In sum, the servant demands kindness from both God and the girl. From God, the servant demands the kindness of divine assistance in his mission. From the girl, he demands the kindness of physical assistance, a manifestation of kind character. At first glance, the servant's test might seem a bit trite. After all, simple manners dictate that one should provide water for a thirsty traveler. Perhaps basic decency alone indicates that one should also offer water for the animals. In fact, this is not at all the case. A thirsty camel after a long journey can drink many gallons of water, up to 25. The servant has brought along 10 camels. Without going into the possible mathematics, we are talking about a massive amount of water, an intensely arduous task for a young girl equipped with a single pitcher. In fact, the Torah specifically emphasizes that Rivka offered to draw water for the camels until they have done drinking, an offer not included in the servant's original test. Not for naught does the Torah state that the man stood wondering until the camels finished drinking. Not just the scope of Rivka's kindness, but also the method of Rivka's kindness seems strikingly unusual. Despite the abrupt full-speed approach of the servant, she replies politely, 
referring to him as Master. She hurries to give him something to drink. She is once again described as hurrying and even running when fulfilling her offer to water the camels. In sum, she adopts a servant position. She hurries and runs to fulfill the needs of her new master and his animals. A quick look at the next stage of the story, termed above section 3, Hospitality at the House of Bituel, should help support this intuition of difference. Rivka, in keeping with her character, runs home to convey the servant's request of a place to sleep, her offer of hospitality, and the fact that the newfound guest is a servant of a kinsman brother. At this point, a new character emerges. Like Rivka, his sister, Lavan runs for the purposes of proffering hospitality. Upon arriving at the well and finding the man and his camels, he formally invites him in. Come, why do you stand outside? I have already cleaned out the house, and there is also place for camels. Apparently, Lavan is just as kind and hospitable as his sister. Or maybe not. In between reporting Lavan's dash to the well and his offer of hospitality, the Torah informs us that, when he saw the earring and bracelets upon his sister's hands, and when he heard the words of Rivka, he came to the man. What is the true motivator of Lavan's hospitality? The tale of Rivka, the story of a thirsty, tired servant of a kinsman? Or is it the gleaming gold adorning her hands and face? Similarly, Lavan's offer is wholly different from Rivka's in language, tone, and content. In pointed contrast to Rivka's assumption of a servant position vis-à-vis her guest and generous offer of place and provisions for the camels, Lavan adopts no such posture and makes no such offer. Instead, he gruffly demands to know why the guest is still standing outside with his camels. After all, Lavan has already gone to the trouble of making room in the house and stable. Lavan remains the master. Finally, once again in pointed contrast to Rivka, Lavan never runs or hurries to provide the proffered hospitality and kindness. In fact, the Torah closes the scene with the statement that the man came into the house and he ungirded the camels and he gave straw and food to the camels. On the simple interpretation, Lavan is completely absent. The servant of Abraham is left to fend for himself. In sum, Rivka is not only kind and hospitable, she is also different. The second part of our story, the story of Rivka and the servant at the well, as well as the third part of our story, the offer of hospitality, primarily teach us about the character of Rivka, the character of kindness, and the character of difference. If Rivka is different from her brother, and by implication different from the social grouping in which she dwells, who indeed is she like? The answer is simple. She is like Avraham. A quick review of the opening of Parashat Vayera, the well-known story describing Abraham's hospitality should be enough to confirm the point. Upon spying the three men, Abraham immediately runs to greet them. In fact, he is frenetic throughout the story. He hurries to the tent to instruct Sarah, and then again runs to the herd to pick out a choice calf. As pointed out previously, these are the exact actions of Rivka later on in chapter 24 when providing hospitality and kindness for her guests. Furthermore, and once again foreshadowing the Rivka story, Abraham addresses his guests as master, refers to himself as their servant, and bows down to his guests. In other words, he adopts a servant position and makes every effort to please his new masters. Once again, this is the language and attitude of Rivka later on in the scene at the well. Finally, and perhaps most obviously, 
the stories are conceptually parallel. In both cases, sustenance is offered to travelers. In both cases, the hospitality extends way beyond the norm. The large feast proffered by Avraham and the staggering amount of water provided by Rivka. Having realized that chapter 24 is interested in identifying the character of Rivka with the character of Avraham, let us turn our attention to the segments of the servant's search not dealt with until this point. As mentioned earlier, section 4, the negotiations, seems rather repetitive. The servant recounts nearly the entire story, the command of Avraham, their discussion regarding the possibility that the chosen girl will not be willing to make the journey, his prayer to God at the well, and the kindness of Rivka. On some level, this is understandable. It is all a necessary part of the negotiations. The servant must explain to Rivka's family what he is doing in their home and why he has given jewelry to their daughter. But that is not all he must do. He must also make his case. He must persuade them to consent to the marriage, to send their daughter to a foreign land. Not surprisingly, in making his case, the servant emphasizes and expands certain details, omits others, and even reworks some of the facts. For example, it turns out that Avraham is a magnificently wealthy man. Previously in the command section, we were told nothing more than that God blessed Avraham with everything. In contrast, the servant begins his tale with the claim that God has blessed my master greatly, and he has become great, and he has given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, and servants and maidservants and camels and donkeys. What is more, the servant remembers to insert a new detail. Avraham has already given everything he possesses to his son, the prospective groom. Moreover, in the command section, Avraham focuses on his land and birthplace as the place to go for a proper bride. When the servant raises the possibility of the woman's refusing to make the journey, to go in the language of the text, Avraham promises divine assistance. God, who took him from his father's house, land, and birthplace, and who swore, to your seed I will give this land, will assure the servant's success. Perhaps more accurately, here in the very last dialogue of Avraham reported in the Torah, Avraham waxes nostalgic. Taken collectively, these phrases constitute a precise echo of chapter 12, the beginning of Parashat Lech Lecha, the story of God's command to Abraham to go from your land, birthplace, and father's house. The story in which Abraham goes to another land, regarding which God promises, to your seed I will give this land. Perhaps even more accurately, it is not just nostalgia. Here in his last dialogue, Abraham looks to pass the baton, the wife of Yitzhak must be someone like Avraham, taken by God from their land, birthplace, and father's house, brought to Canaan to generate a nation. Not surprisingly, in the servant's summary later on in chapter 24, all the references to chapter 12 have disappeared. In his recounting to Rivka's family, the servant claims that Avraham sent him to fetch a wife, not from Avraham's land and birthplace, but from his family and father's house. Likewise, it is not the God who took Abraham from his father's house, land, and birthplace, and promised him a future that assures a successful mission. Rather, it is God whom Abraham has walked in front of, the God who has guided, watched, and helped Abraham, that guarantees success. Gone are the references to Abraham, the emigrant, the crazy dreamer convinced of his destiny, the abandoner of his family and clan. In sum... In place of the story of a search for someone the like of Avraham of Lechlecha, the servant tells a different story. 
He tells the story of the rich and successful kinsman who has been granted great wealth by God. He tells the story of the rich man's wish that his son marry within the clan. When he describes the events at the well in a way so that no one can possibly dispute the divine selection of Rivka, he artfully repackages the hidden divine command to follow in the footsteps of Abraham. The implicit divine imperative and challenge of Lech Lecha contained within the providential picking of Rivka has now been wrapped and buried under the bright paper and ribbons of a marriage to a divinely guarded and wealthy kinsman. The negotiations end with the family's acquiescence. They concede. The servant's efforts have succeeded. Yet all is not yet sealed. Despite the servant's spin, the relatives are not completely convinced. Their agreement already possesses an ominous modifier, another clause hitched onto their submission. And Lavan and Bituel answered, This thing comes from God. We cannot speak bad or good. A striking lack of enthusiasm. Or perhaps their words reflect a darker desire that they indeed wish they could speak bad of the servant's story and God's will. This reluctance picks up speed in the next section of the servant's search, parting and journey. The servant gets up the next morning and requests his leave. At this point, a crucial dialogue ensues. And her brother and her mother said, Let the girl stay with us days, yamim, or a period of ten, asor. After that, she shall go. And he said to them, Don't delay me, for God has prospered my way. Send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, We will call the girl and inquire from her mouth. And they called Rivka and said to her, Will you go with this man? And she said, I will go. Despite the obvious selection of Rivka by God, the servant's packaging and the lavish gifts, Rivka's relatives wish to delay. They propose a hazy and non-specific waiting period, days or a period of ten. Based upon Vayikra, most commentaries translate the term yamim as meaning a year. If so, who knows how long a period of ten lasts? In response to the family's reluctance and the imminent collapse of all his efforts, the servant insistently reiterates that God has guided his success. It is God's will that Rivka go with him. The directions granted by divine providence must be followed. All subterfuge now has been dropped. The masks have fallen. In a last-ditch effort, the family proposes to ask the girl, does she wish to go or not? Rivka's simple and resounding response of I will go decides the matter. No room is left for delay or refusal. Rivka parts from her family and goes. It is, of course, no accident that the stem halach, meaning go, appears numerous times throughout the scene. Going or not constitutes the conceptual linchpin of the action. But there is more. Part of the drama of the section is the re-emergence of the previously submerged. The servant has done his best to persuade the family, transmuting the challenge of Lech Lecha, of leaving family, land, and birthplace, of going after God to a future in another land, into a proposal of clan marriage. God's providential role in the choice of Rivka is but an additional reason to consent. God has been good to Abraham. Now, through the agency of the marriage, the servant and his gifts, he will be good to Rivka and her family. But here, everything is reduced to the brute heart of the matter. Just God's will and the word go. Going after God or not going after God. It turns out that section 6, Parting and Journey, like the sections detailing the events at the well and the hospitality at the house of Bituel, is really about the character of Rivka. 
Just as before it was about possessing the chesed character of Abraham, this time it is about the character of Lechlecha, to go after God, to part from the known and venture into the unknown. Furthermore, just as before, it is also about the character of difference. Rivka is different from her relatives. She neither delays nor resists. She just goes. In sum, we can conclude that much of the detail of chapter 24, the story of the bride of Yitzchak, is connected to the agenda of the chapter. This can be best realized by returning to our sketch of the problematic parts of the chapter's structure and juxtaposing the subtext and agenda of each section with the apparent topic. Section 1, Avraham's command to his servant to take a bride for Yitzchak from Avraham's land and birthplace. Agenda, the requirement to find a bride who will be like Avraham in character and experience. Section 2, Rivka and the servant at the well. Agenda, Rivka is like Avraham in possessing the attribute of kindness. Section 3, the offer of hospitality at the house of Betuel. Agenda, Rivka is different. Section 4, the negotiations at the house of Betuel and the repetition of the story until this point. Agenda, the presentation and muting of the imperative of Lechlecha, of being like Avraham. And section 5, parting and the journey home. Agenda, the resistance of the family to divine providence. Rivka is like Avraham in going after God. In her character of Lechlecha, Rivka is different. The chapter is really not so much the story of the servant's search, but the story of the character of Rivka, the character of going after God, of kindness, of difference, the character of Avraham. Before closing, I would like to integrate chapter 24, the character of Rivka, into the larger context of forefather stories found in Sefer Breshit. It is no secret that many of the events of the life of Avraham seem to happen twice. To name but a few of the event pairs, Avraham twice visits a foreign land and claims his wife as his sister. He twice stands engaged with Lot and Sodom, and twice contracts a covenant with God. These pairs can be split and arranged in a chiastic structure, with the two covenants serving as the turning point. The first section, Avraham in a foreign land, Egypt. The second section, Avraham, Lot, and Stom, parting, war, and rescue. The third section, the covenant of the pieces, children, and land. The fourth section, corresponding with the third section, the covenant of circumcision, children, and land. The fifth section, corresponding with the second section, Avraham, Lot, and Stom, Avraham's prayer. And the last section, corresponding with the first section, Avraham in a foreign land, Avimelech and Grar. While the sketch is rough and leaves out much significant detail, it should make us realize that there are two cycles of Avraham's stories. In fact, each group is preceded by a command from God to Avraham, a command that involves the verb stem halach, a command to go. Group 1 begins with the command and story of Lechlecha. Group 2 begins with the command, Hitalech lefanai, to walk in front of God and be perfect, tamim. These parallel units delineate fundamentally different themes and challenges. Even without entering into an exhaustive analysis, we can easily note that Group 1, all the material up to and including the Covenant of the Pieces, is animated by the themes of children, land, wealth, loyalty, and future. In other words, Group 1 is about following after God for the purposes of future national existence. It foreshadows and presents the issues of nationhood, 
famine, economics, war, future, loyalty to land and loyalty to God. It constitutes the journey for nationhood. Group 2 focuses on altogether different themes. This can be discerned in the command prefacing the story cycle. God commands Avraham to walk and journey, not as part of a process of becoming a great nation, but rather as part of a divine demand for the status of tamim, best translated as wholeness or perfection. But what is the content of perfection? The term tamim appears in only one other place in Breshit. Nach is described as tamim and as walking in the ways of God. In the context of Nach, the term and its conjunction with walking with God stand in stark opposition to the violent social corruption and sexual perversion of the generation of the flood. In other words, tamim is a word connoting righteousness and ethics. These, of course, are the themes of the second cycle of Avraham's stories. From the implicit symbolism of Brit Milah as a sexual imitation, to the hospitality of Avraham, to the prayer for Sdom, to the teaching of hospitality and ethics, and the power of prayer to Avimelech. All the stories are about a life of decency, mercy, justice, ethics, and prayer. In sum, Group 2 is about Avraham as the father of religious ethics, a very different kind of journey. The Akedah opens with a third journey command to Avraham, a marker for a new group of Avraham stories. But here there is only one story. He is commanded, Take your son, your only son, Yitzchak, whom you love, and go, Lech Lecha, to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. This story represents the negation of all that has come before. The third journey command, the command to sacrifice Yitzchak, means there will be no future, no descendants, no land, and no nationhood. It negates the entire first journey. Likewise, the command to sacrifice Yitzchak is a moral horror, murder of one's own flesh and blood for the sake of God. It is the antithesis of Abraham's second journey, a religion of bloody murder rather than a religion of mercy, ethics, and prayer. This double negation constitutes the essence of the test. Can Abraham negate his past, his hopes, his ethics, and his religion? Can he negate the essence of his dual journey and his very self? Can he replace it all with a complete submission to the will of God? Abraham passed. On the third journey, the journey of submission, Abraham proved himself capable of negating all. But was Abraham the same afterwards? Did he still think that the journey for nationhood, its values and concerns, were central to the God-man relationship? Could he still believe in the journey of religious ethics? Was not the lesson of the Akedah that submission and negation constitute the essence and entirety of the God-man relationship? Let us leave the murky turf of projective psychology. As readers of the Bible, we may very easily assume the attitude outlined above. The God-man relationship is not about the first journey, a triangle of God, nation, and land. It is not about the second journey, a triangle of God-man society bounded by ethics and prayer. These have all been replaced. It is the third journey of self-negation and private submission to the absolute divine will that constitutes all in the God-man relation. This brings us full circle to chapter 24 and the character of Rivka, the first real story of the next generation. Rivka is like Abraham, but in which ways? The answer has already been argued for above. Rivka is like Abraham in her character of kindness and in her character of lechlecha, her willingness to leave all behind, imagine a future, 
and mother a nation. She is like Abraham in the ways of the first journey, the journey of future nationhood, and the ways of the second journey, the journey of religious ethics. No hint is given in the Torah that she resembles Abraham in the third journey, the journey of negation and submission. The story of Rivka is anticipated in the genealogy of Nahor, placed at the end of the Akedah, and, accepting the death and burial of Sarah, follows immediately after the Akedah. This is no accident. We are meant to realize that the imperatives, themes, and character requirements of the first two journeys live on even after the Akedah. They are present and necessary in the next generation. They are even searched for. The story of Rivka reminds us that the Akedah constitutes but one leg of a triad, perhaps the crescendo, but not the total of Abraham's relationship with God, the final version of his inheritance. To conclude, the reverse is also true. While Rivka embodies the first two journeys of Abraham, Yitzchak embodies the third. Yitzchak and the Akedah are one. He is not just a participant in the Akedah, but the bearer of its religious essence and psychological legacy, the character of negation and submission. All three journeys are meant to continue on.